The following sermon is from Redemption Bible Church of New Braunfels, where we are proclaiming the authority of God's Word without apology, in order to fulfill the Great Commission in the spirit of the Great Commandment. Exodus 36. Exodus 36. We're actually going to back up six verses into Exodus 35, verse 30 to get going, but if you turn there, it'll get you where you need to be. Now, today wraps up our lengthy uh, series through Exodus. It's been great, hasn't it? You think back to uh, way back to part one, we've journeyed with these Israelites from uh, their slavery in Egypt to now freedom as God's people in the wilderness and everything in between. And now as we come to the concluding chapters, as they are uh, set free to work, I wonder what it was like for the Israelites to find themselves on this day. You know, through the end, though this is really the end of the book of Exodus, it's really in many ways the beginning of a whole new era of God's people. I can imagine for them that the excitement was high and their enthusiasm was through the roof. I suppose in some ways it was a lot like the, you know, the first game of the, of the season for a basketball team. They you know, had been through a lot in the offseason. They've been given a new playbook. Some uh, players have left. New players have joined the team. They have been doing these team-building exercises and lots of scrimmages and, pro, uh, uh, and practices. And now it's the first game. Now it is time to play. Excitement was high, their enthusiasm through the roof. Maybe it was a lot like a baby day. You know, from the moment when you find out you're pregnant with your first child and it's new territory and you uh, begin to read all the things that are out there, books and articles on parenting and uh, feeding a baby, and you uh, start to get all the things that come with baby diapers and changing tables and car seats and, you know, in all these instances and basketball season, pregnancy, whatever, and all things in life. You know, when there's unknowns ahead for us, there are two things that we can always be certain of. God will be glorified and life will be different. Always in life, no matter what it is, God will be glorified and life will be different. And uh, for the Israelites here, the excitement was high. The enthusiasm was for sure through the roof because now it was time to construct the tabernacle. As uh, Exodus comes to a close now, they have uh, been given all the uh, instructions that they needed from the Lord. In the previous chapters that, they've, that we've covered, they have been themselves given of their resources, their gold and precious stones of the materials necessary to build the tabernacle and to, uh, uh, to build the priest's garments that he would wear. And so the people had given, God had given the plans, and God had also given His promise that once these things had happened, that He would dwell there with them in their midst. See, this is what the entire book of Exodus is leading us towards. See, why did the God of glory deliver them from slavery? Why did the Lord preserve them through the judgments? Why did the Lord rescue them through the Red Sea? Why did the Lord provide food and water in the wilderness? Why did he make a covenant with them? Why would the Lord relent of his anger and extend mercy when they had sinned with the golden calf? so that he could be their God and they would be his people. 
so that God would get the glory due him, that he would be glorified not just amongst these people, but throughout the nations. He would do these things so that he could come and dwell amongst his people. And yet, church, because he's holy, because he is perfect, because he is who he is and humanity is sinful and who we are, God had to make these provisions all along the way so that he could come near to them. Our sin was the obstacle, and so God gave the way to get over the obstacle. See, this was his plan. He knew it. He then invited them to contribute. He invited them to construct. He invited them in to do the work of the ministry on this game day so that he could meet with them. See, there's an overarching truth over our remaining chapters here in Exodus 36 through 40. And the overarching point is this, that the God of glory sets us free to work joyfully for him. If you're taking notes, write that down. But the God of glory uh, sets us free to work joyfully for him. He did that with the Israelites. He does that with us. And maybe even as I state that, you're saying, like, wait, what? They've just been set free from the brutal slavery, the brutal work. But now, yes, they've been brought into the joyful service of the Lord. See, work for the Lord is similar to like the work that happens on the basketball court. It's the work to run and cut and uh, shoot and defend. But it is full of fun, isn't it? Our work for the Lord is like physical work, uh, athletic work. The exhaustion is worth it. And see, church, spending and being spent for the Lord is always worth it. It is always worth it. Why? Because in our joyful obedience to the Lord, he comes and dwells near to us. So if you're trying to make sense of the verses, if you're trying to make sense here of the, of the flow of Exodus, think then this way, of those long chapters that we covered weeks ago, chapters you know, 25 through uh, 31, or even farther back than that, chapter 20 through uh, 31, that is like the playbook. That is the preseason, and now today, these chapters is the game where the Israelites now set to work doing exactly what God had told them to do. And so what do we make of this? We're going to fly over much of this passage at 30,000 feet. We'll, uh, uh, hopefully you brought your skydiving material because we are going to skydive. You know, we'll, we'll parachute down into some passages here. But we have much to learn about working joyfully for the Lord from these chapters here. So here's some truths that we need to keep before us now as we look closer at it. Here's your first point. Work for the Lord is spirit-given. Work for the Lord is spirit-given. Go to your Bible then, after you write that down, go to your Bible then in chapter 35. You, hopefully you found it already. And I want to just read this uh, section of Scripture, just these seven verses here. That is really the doorway into the larger uh, story here. Look then and follow along as I read it, beginning in Exodus 35, verse 30. Then Moses said to the people of Israel, See, the Lord has called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, son of Hur of the tribe of Judah. And he has filled him with the Spirit of God, with skill, with intelligence, with knowledge, and with all craftsmanship, to devise artistic designs, to work in gold and silver and bronze, in cutting stones for setting and in carving wood, for work in every skilled craft. And he has inspired him to teach, both him and Aholiab, the son of Ahisamach, of the tribe of Dan. 
He has filled them with skill to do every sort of work done by an engraver or by a designer or by an embroiderer in blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen or by a weaver, by any sort of workman or skilled designer. Bezalel and Aholiab and every craftsman in whom the Lord has put skill and intelligence to know how to do any work in the construction of the sanctuary shall work in accordance with all that the Lord has commanded. Now, this is God's word for God's people. Look here, church, this passage really is almost an identical passage to uh, Exodus 31, 1 through 6. There the Lord and here uh, the Lord calls and sets aside these two men, Bezalel and Aholiab. There he's saying, I am setting these two guys apart. And now it's like they show up on the job site and these two men have been set aside to lead the charge in the building. They were the lead craftsmen. They were the big boss on the job site. And notice what the Lord gives them for this task. Did you catch that? The most important part of this whole passage is what he gives them. Look here at verse 31. He has filled them with what? Spirit of God. He's given them himself to do the work of the ministry, the most important skill, the most important thing, the most important person or uh, to be filled with the Spirit is something that we likely take for granted as believers today. You know, it's, it's just something I think, or hopefully you've learned from the earliest days that you started to walk with the Lord, that when we come to faith in Jesus Christ, when we've repented of our sin and believed in Christ, God's Spirit, God Himself lives in us. He fills us up. And don't think of this filling like, you know, you have your cup of coffee and you poured your cup of coffee into it. It's not like that. It's not like a jar with, full of water. Think more of feeling like you are a sailboat with, a, with sails and the Spirit of God is filling your sails. See, to be filled with the Spirit is to be moved by the Spirit. To be given the energy and the direction and the, and the movement that is necessary to follow the Lord. Isn't this an incredible gift? God would give us himself. And how does he move them? How does he, what else does he fill them with? Well, look, he fills them with skill. Uh, what, is, what is the skill? It's the competency that they would need to measure and cut and affix and et cetera, to do all of these things with wisdom. With wisdom. See, the best practices are learned by experience. And so God would give these men, these craftsmen, the competency necessary to do the work that he had called them to do. But not just skill. He fills them with intelligence. Now some of y'all are filled with a whole bunch of this, aren't you? What is in this intelligence? What is he getting at here? Well, in the work of the ministry, in this work that he's given them to do, it is an ability to do what God has called them to do and an ability to problem solve. An intelligence to think quickly and to make decisions there on the spot. And it's not just an intelligence, but also a knowledge, a knowledge of the subject, of the materials in which they are, are using, a practical understanding of how these stones work and how the, uh, the fabrics uh, fit together and how the project will come together. See, God gives them what they need by means of knowledge, but also, look what the next word is, craftsmanship, with all craftsmanship. See, in, in the world of building, in the world of trades, there are builders and there are craftsmen, aren't there? See, I, I, I can build things. I know how to use power tools and hand tools. If you tell me what to do and give me instructions, I can build. But I'll tell you what, I ain't a craftsman. Gordon Miller, he's a craftsman. 
He makes things uh, with excellence, right? All, all craftsmanship is a competency, yes, to build and cut and fix and do all the things that God would call them to do, but it is doing it with excellence and attention to detail, to the fine things, to the design, and really, which is where he's coming to, all craftsmanship. And then look at verse 32, to devise artistic designs, to work in gold and silver and this is an understanding, a skill, a love for the material, a love for the, uh, the project, uh, seeing the reason in which they are building. And so what does the Lord do? The Lord calls these men. He sets them apart for this work, and he gives them the comprehensive wisdom and ability that they would need to do the work according to God's standards. See, make no mistake about this church. God, the Lord, always equips his people for his work by his spirit. Write that down if you're taking notes. The Lord equips his people for his work by his spirit. And so God wouldn't just say, hey, I want you to go build this. Now figure it out by yourself. No, but the Lord, by his spirit, is leading the charge and equipping these people to do the work that he would call them to do. And this isn't just a one-time event. All throughout our scriptures, God has been doing this. Uh, when he uh, sets his people uh, on a mission, he gives them exactly what they need. Generations later, he would equip Kings David and Solomon, the Old Testament prophets, to lead his people in these eras. He would do it again in the time of Christ, through John the Baptist, through his apostles, at the foundation of the church in the book of Acts. And guess what? He is doing it even today. The Lord is equipping his people in the work for the building up of the church, for the advancement of the gospel, for the fulfillment of the great commission. The Lord always equips his people for his work by his spirit. And church, this is something that we need to remember often, that work for the Lord is spirit given. We need to remember this especially when we are serving the Lord, when we are working for him and we feel in over our head. Ever been there? Like, all right, I'll, I'll do it, but I have no idea what I'm, uh, how I'm going to get through this. I have no idea how I'm supposed to, uh, uh, to, to serve in this way. We must remember and take confidence in those moments that the Lord will give us exactly what we need when we need it to accomplish His. For the Lord is spirit-given when, when we think our gifts are ours. No, these are skills that I've learned. These are the skills that, that I do. This is, this, this is mine. I have cultivated this skill. Oh, church, let us not allow that type of arrogance to sneak in to think that these gifts belong to us, that our work for the Lord, our talents are somehow originated in us and are not given from the Lord. So they are all from him. He equips us to do it all. The Lord will equip you. If you're, if you're called into serving with kids or students here at our church or in the community, if there's a need to bring the gospel, he will give you what you need. The Lord will equip you with the boldness to talk to your neighbors, to have the words and the conversation that for the questions they may uh, ask you, to open your home to strangers or your foster kids or whatever the Lord is calling you to do, your work for the Lord, God will always equip you if he is calling you to it. See, if the mission is moving you, then the spirit in your heart will give you what you need as your heart is ready for it. You know what's so cool? 
That's so cool. The Spirit moves them in this, but it doesn't end here. See, He perpetuates it also through us as other people are brought into it, as we bring other people into it through discipleship. See, there's a second truth in the end of this book that we have to keep before us in our work for the Lord. Not only is our work for the Lord Spirit-given, but our work for the Lord is discipleship. It's discipleship. Now, tucked into the verses I just read in the preceding verses is this theme, this theme of discipleship. Look here back at your Bible. Go to 35, 34, and I'm going to jump ahead. But look here. It says, And he inspired him to teach both him and Aholiab, the son of Ahisamach of the tribe of Dan. Now jump over to 36.2. And Moses called Bezalel and Aholiab, and every craftsman in whose mind the Lord had put skill, everyone whose heart stirred him up to come do the work. And they received from Moses all the contribution that the people of Israel had brought for doing the work on the sanctuary. They still kept bringing him free will offerings every morning so that all the craftsmen who were doing every sort of task on the sanctuary came, each from the task that he was doing, and said to Moses, The people bring much more than enough for doing the work that the Lord has commanded us to do. So Moses gave command, and word was proclaimed throughout the camp, Let no man or woman do anything more for the contribution for the sanctuary. So the people were restrained from bringing, for the material they had was sufficient to do all the work and more. This is God's word for God's people. Church, isn't this like an incredible passage here? And this awesome, like Bezalel and Aholiab, they lead the charge, but many are doing the work and they are given this ability to teach or they are inspired then to teach others to do the work. See, part of our work for the Lord is not just so that we would do it all, so that we would uh, somehow take the credit for ourselves, but also to teach others to pass the baton forward so that they are also brought into the joy of serving the Lord. See, God wanted as many people as possible to be a part of the construction of the tabernacle here, I think. He didn't want it just to fall on these two people or just on Moses, but he was bringing others in so much so they were all compelled to give and to work. And it had this like compounding effect. Just as we saw last week in chapter 35, like they're, all their hearts are stirred from leaders to, uh, the, to, to the craftsmen, men, women, everybody, all of Israel was inspired to give so much so that they have to like the restrain, like, hey, we've got enough. We, we can't take any more. They have to cut it off. But it's this abundance here and the abundance of the giving and the abundance of the workers that we know this is directly from the Lord. Say, make no mistake about this. Church, God's people always get behind God's work. Right? Write that down if, if, if you want. God's people always get behind God's work. When God calls the, uh, the people to work, when there's a need before us, when the mission is set, God's people always rise up. He will not, God will not let his work lack. Lack in materials, lack in things. Now, he may call you to do it with a, with a, a sparse army. Look what he does, you know, Gideon, case in point. I wanted to do with thousands, and God's like, nope, nope, nope. Let's. Why does he do that? So that he gets the glory. So that the Lord gets the glory through the people, through the gifts, and through this discipleship as we are passing it on to others. See, our discipleship and the work for the Lord is both caught and it is taught. 
Bezalel and Holyab, they lead the way, they teach, they show people the practical skills for the engraving, for the embroidery, for all the carving and the work that they need to do. They teach others. And as more do, more people give, more people get involved, which means more can do and more can give. And this is exactly, church, what discipleship is all about. Giving more so others give more. Investing in others for their spiritual good so they invest in others for their spiritual good so they invest in others for their spiritual good. Teaching both biblical truths and also practical skills for life. And our passage here, the skills are pretty specific, aren't they? Like they're all listed out here of weaving and engraving and embroidering and carving and constructing and metallurgy and all these things. But often in life, it is way more general. And this is something that all of us can do, isn't it? We're all called to serve the Lord and we all can be giving it away, asking yourself, like, who can I pour into? Who can I pour into? I was encouraged once by a mentor of mine to do this. He says, whatever you do well, don't ever do it alone. I thought, like, what, what does he mean by that? What does he mean by that? He means like, if you do something well, make sure you have somebody else with you so they can see you. You can be teaching them and modeling for them whatever it might be. And so what, what is a church that you do well? What's, what skills has God given you? What has the Spirit uh, given you to do? What intelligence or knowledge or craftsmanship and whatever the, uh, you know, the myriad of gifts and abilities that he has given you to do? What can you do well? Let me just encourage you for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of the mission, don't ever do it alone. Bring somebody alongside with you. Think how you can take the skill and connect it to the gospel. How you can make a beeline to Christ and show them how... Uh, we have this verse before you. It says, What you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses and trust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. See, that verse is like ingrained into the, uh, the, the fabric of our church and fabric really of the Christian life that we are giving away what we have. We are giving away uh, uh, these biblical truths that God has taught to us. Paul's speaking there specifically of the gospel, of biblical truth. But we can expand this mentality out into our discipleship in everything. See, we need to remember this truth. We need to keep this before us that everything is an opportunity for the mission. Everything is, uh, discipleship plays out in the home. As older women, as you seek out younger women to uh, pass on the wisdom that you've learned in marriage and parenting and working and life. As older men, as you seek out younger men in the same way, pass on skills of biblical manhood and working for the Lord and loving your wife and loving your kids. Parents, this plays out in the home. Even as you, uh, as you make your priority, your disciples in your church or in your home, your home, your kids, they are your primary disciples. They are the one who you are investing in for their spiritual good. Teach them in everything. You're teaching them how to cook, as you're teaching them how to build, as you're teaching them how to fold clothes and do laundry and clean the house and scrub toilets. Teach them through this to love Christ. Teach them to love the Lord. Let them see it through you. Show them that even as you serve them, you are doing so out of joyful obedience and work for the Lord. Let them see it in you. 
This plays out in the workplace as we seek out coworkers, as we seek out others, pass on skills, as we would serve them even in the workplace to have an intentional spiritual impact. As we live out the gospel in our workplace, it plays out in the church, obviously here. As we serve on ministry teams, as we seek out others, as we serve one another, as we ask others to join. See, no work, no team here at the church is more or less important, but we all are working together. Why? So that every time we gather, we go vertical. That every time we gather, our work is compiled together so that we can collectively meet with the Lord. And this is why we gather. Our work for the Lord is discipleship. But here is the third point. It is also communal. Our work for the Lord is communal as we all work together to keep the gospel central in what we do. Now this point here takes us through the bulk of the passage, so I'm not going to read it. This is really the entirety of 36, 37, 38, and even into 39. We'd be here for the next hour or so uh, if I was going to read that. But I want to show you something that is repeated through it so you can see where we get this point from it. There's something, there's a a phrase here. So get your hands ready because we want you to be turning your pages. Get your eyes ready because I want you to see this beginning in verse 8. And look what it says. It says, And all the craftsmen among the workmen made the tabernacle with ten curtains. They make this. Look it down then at uh, verse 11. He made loops of blue. Verse 12, he made 50 loops. And verse 13, and he made 50 clasps of gold. Verse 14, and also he made curtains of goat's hair. Verse 17, and he made 50 loops on the edge of the uh, outermost curtain. Verse 18, and he made 50 clasps of bronze. Verse 19, and he made. Verse 20, then he made. And verse 23, the frames for the tabernacle he made. And verse 24, and he made. And get the point? Dozens and dozens of times throughout the next chapters, 37, as he makes the ark, Bezalel made. And 37.10, and he also made the table of acacia wood. And verse 17, and he made the lampstand of pure gold. And verse 25, and he made the altar of incense. And guess what? repeated over and over and over is what church he he made he made he made he made you get the point he's not when he says he made he's not just referring to like one builder like bezalel made this whole thing but he's referring to the collective whole they are all getting to work on the various parts of the tabernacle now the order of construction here follows a little bit of a different progression than the instructions from the previous chapters there god would give the instructions according to its theological significance in uh, chapters 25 through 31 but now it's in how it is built built from the inside out generally speaking. And so uh, here's the photo on the screen. If you remember the construction of the temple as we were in that, the curtains around the outside, you have the Holy of Holies there in the middle with the Ark of the Covenant and the altar of incense and the lampstand and the showbread there on the inside. You have the wash basin, or they call it the laver there, and the bronze altar and the pillars all around. And so that's just starting with the curtains or the pillars around the outside and then the ark and then the table and the lampstand, the altar of incense, and they're working their uh, way out then to the outside and the furniture and the courtyard and everything else. And so it's working its way out in these chapters, but what are they doing? They're building it in order. 
They're all working together on these various parts. And then go over to chapter 38, verse uh, 21 here. Uh, then there's like this little, uh, it's a unique passage here, as they uh, really record all that was built or all that was given, the, uh, the exquisiteness of the tabernacle. Ithamar here is, he's like uh, appointed as the secretary of the treasury, apparently. And it goes on to list these things, the gold that was used and all the shekels and the talents, which don't mean much for us. But, but note this, really what it's getting at is this place was lavish. Lavish. You ever walked in somebody's house like that or gone on like one of those house tours and you walked into this mansion that was palatial and you're just like awestruck. Like, wow, gold finishes, marble finishes, everything. I mean, wide open passageways and you walk in and you are just in awe. To the people of Israel, to the people in this day, really what he's getting at there is this place was exquisite. There's no home like this. Again, it's like, wait, this is a tent, there's gold, there's shekels, there's what? What does all this mean? What he's referring to, to uh, the, when this was written, is this place was awesome. It was awesome. Nothing comes close to the value of the materials that were given and used to make this meeting, this tent of meeting. For whose house is this, after all? Lord's house. Is the Lord's house. This is his house. And meanwhile, as they're building all the, the construction, as they're doing all this, the seamstresses, the embroiders, they're constructing the priestly garments there in chapter 39. And so guess what's repeated again in chapter 39? And he made the ephod of gold. They made the onyx stones. They make the breastpiece. They make the robe of the ephod woven all with well, over and over. Again, they make these things that look like, here's another picture. Remember this? Still want an outfit like this someday, but probably not. No. All the different things and you know, each of these pieces, as you remember, have some theological significance. It's greater than just a garment. It's not just a fashionable thing that the priest would wear in these days, but each was significant. Each piece pointing to greater realities in Jesus Christ, to our, our covering in his righteousness. The fact that we cannot come near to God clothed in our sin, but we must come with a foreign, with an external covering of righteousness in Jesus Christ. This is how we draw near to God. This is what Jesus did. I'd encourage you, if you weren't here for those messages, to go back on our website or on our podcast and listen to it. And so you get the point. You're like, okay, yeah, cool. They built it. They all did it. But here's the thing, church. The point is they all work together, unified, collectively to make this happen. Look at chapter 39, verse 32, which sums it all up. Chapter 39, verse 32. Thus, all the work of the tabernacle of the tent of meeting was finished. And the people of Israel did according to all that the Lord had commanded. So they did. See, church, God commanded, they contributed, they constructed as an uncommon community working together so that God would be worshipped, so that he would meet with them. Imagine if the guy that was like appointed to make the hooks didn't show up. You know, the, the hooks that hung the curtain on the, on the poles. Imagine if he just like got grumpy one day. He's like, well, I wanted to make the lampstand. 
don't want to make the hooks. I want to, I'm, I'm better than that. I want to make the lampstand. But Bezalel said that he, I need to make the hooks. And so he doesn't show up because he's grumpy. Imagine maybe he didn't show up because he's mad at someone. They said something hurtful to him. They made a comment that the hooks didn't shine like they were supposed to. And instead of forgiving them, instead of working to shine, instead of working a little hard, he just bails on the work and doesn't show up. It's the hooks, right? No, no hooks mean no curtains, which mean no curtains are hung, which means the tabernacle is exposed and naked and the glory of the Lord would not be concealed, which ultimately then means God does not meet with them. See, church, every person, every task, every skill, everything, no matter how glamorous or how uh, you know, uh, obscure it may seem, every part is important in the greater work of the Lord. It's not about the the job in and of itself, per se. It's about God's people working together so that God would come and meet with them in their midst. See, the same point is made by Apostle Paul again in 1 Corinthians 12. As he calls his people there, the church there, to work together. Just listen to these verses. They may be familiar to some of you. 1 Corinthians 12, beginning in verse 4, he says, Now there are varieties of gifts but the same Spirit. There are varieties of service, but the same Lord. There are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good, end quote. Now there's some echoes there back to Exodus, isn't there? One Spirit giving the work, one Lord who is our master, one God who is empowering the work all wise for the good of all the people and the glory of God so that he would come and meet with them. The passage would go on to use the, these examples of, of, of saying, well, I'm not necessary. It's a truth we must keep before us, especially when we think that all of this, all of our work revolves around us. You think like, well, nothing will get done in my home if I, you know, if I wasn't here. We begin to think that. We need to keep this truth. No, everybody has a part. Each of us has a part for the glory of God and the good of one another in everything. Church, let us do our part for the glory of God. And while doing so, experience the blessing of obedience. That's what this chapter is, is uh, culminating in. See, here's the, the, the next truth to really keep before us that is woven all throughout it. But our work for the Lord is obedience. And obedience is where we find the blessing, the blessing of God. See, come back to the text now. We left off in 39, 32. So we'll pick it back up now in verse 33. And, and let me just kind of like work our way through and summarize it here. See, the people had built all the parts they built all the parts, and now they bring it to Moses. Look at verse 33. Then they brought the tabernacle to Moses, the tent and all its utensils, its hooks, its frames, its bars, its pillars, and its bases. And it goes on to say, here's everything that they brought. It's like the, you know, the, the, the order list that comes when like, the delivery truck shows up. Ever been on a job site or something and they come and they like here are all the items on the list and they want you to check it and look through all the boxes or everything. Now in those days they they didn't have trucks that would show up. Maybe I guess the donkeys like you know carted all these things into Moses. Like here's everything that we are bringing to you and it's all recapped then up to verse 41. But then in verse 42 and 43 now is the summary again. Look at it. It says according to 
all that the Lord had commanded Moses, so the people of Israel had done all the work. And Moses saw all the work, and behold, they had done it. As the Lord had commanded, so had they done it. Then Moses blessed them. Church, their work for the Lord, their obedience to the Lord brought the blessing. See, we said this a few weeks ago, and I want us to remember it again because it's so easy. God's way, we obey. God's way, we obey, obey not the, uh, our own way. We obey not the cultural way, not the way we've always guides us. This is what leads. This is the pathway to blessing. They do it, and look, they're how the chapter ends. They are blessed or honored for it. Church, Make no mistake, God's way is the only and always way we are blessed. Our way, the way we've always done it, that doesn't always lead to blessing. But God's way always does. So then the Lord, he starts speaking now. They bring all the things to Moses. And then in chapter 40, the Lord begins to speak again, and he gives instructions for the assembly. All the pieces show up, and now uh, the Lord says, hey, here's how you, here, here's how you uh, are to, to put all of this stuff together. And we're given a time marker here at the beginning of, of chapter 40 in their obedience, because the Lord says, hey, on the first day of the first month, you shall erect the tabernacle of the tent of meeting, and you shall put it in the ark of the testimony and shall screen the ark with the veil. So why is that important? Well, you remember with the Passover, this was months and months ago now, earlier in Exodus, where their calendar just got totally reshifted. And so now, exactly one year after that date, as they would leave, God says, now on this day, on the one-year anniversary, build this. That's kind of a helpful time marker for us, isn't it? Because now we think, all right, well, they left. They were in the wilderness for these times, so it probably took them about six months to build all this stuff. And now, on this exciting day, their anniversary, the Lord says, hey, Moses, put all this stuff together. Yeah, put it, put it all here. Someone has to, has to assemble it all. I, I, I kind of picture it here as the Lord would go through. We're not going to read it all because he basically just repeats it all. Uh, put this stuff together, put this stuff together. But it's kind of like, you know, when, when you get those kits, like a shed kit or, or a, you know, even cabins, whole houses or barns, you know, come in a kit where everything is already pre-cut and all the holes are already pre-drilled. We had a, our playground in the backyard came exactly like this. And all I had to do was assemble it. You know, that like phrase, some assembly required. It's actually like, no, all assembly is required. They just give you this box. It shows up and it's like, wait, this is going to turn into a playground. And Sure enough, it, it did. When, the box, when we picked up the box for the playground, I thought, there's no way this is all the pieces. And somehow they had just fit it all in there, the slide and everything, and we assembled it all. And that's exactly what this is, what God is calling Moses to do. I wonder if he was confused. I wonder if he got to a point, he's like, wait, does it go like this? Yeah. All right, 50, count 50 here. Well, what's the point in all this? See, leaders aren't exempt from obedience and work of the ministry either. God would call the people to do the work. Moses just doesn't sit back while others people did God to do this final work, even though he himself was sinful. He was far from perfect, even though he was in progress as well. But God had inherited upon him the responsibility for God's glory, for the good of the people, because his obedience would be a blessing to others also. 
See, as leaders obey the Lord, others are blessed. As we obey the Lord, others are blessed. Our kids are blessed. As we obey the Lord, our co-workers are blessed. As we obey the Lord, and we must remember this. We must keep this uh, before us, this truth that our work for the Lord is an act of obedient worship, especially when obedience seems hard. Especially when it seems hard. And so no matter if you, you know, your service, your work for the Lord is one of leadership or one of just counting the offering, if you change diapers or you change light bulbs around here, if you make coffee or park cars, see, each of us has been set free from our sin to serve Christ joyfully, radically set free, radically set free, radically transformed of our mind and our soul and body where our work now, our activity, our exertion no longer leads to destruction, but when it is for the mission of God, it leads to life, a life of joyful service and a life of joyful worship. And it is here how the book of Exodus really ends. And so we, cannot, we can't let this final truth escape us this morning, church. We must keep this before us always, that work for the Lord is worship. Our work for the Lord is worship. Moses finishes the work in verse 33 here. Look what it, what it says. Moses finished the work, but then look where it ends. Exodus 40 Verse 34, then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle throughout all their journeys. Whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out till the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and fire was in it by night, in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. Now this is God's word for God's people, and this is how the Lord had worked the last six months. This is what they had been working to see, is that God would come and be in their midst. That he would now lead them by cloud and by fire. Now, what's, what's said here is a phrase that we've seen often throughout this, but we, we can't read over it. It's called the tent of meeting for a reason. Not just because it was some big old tent that a whole bunch of people could come and have a meeting in, but it was the place where they would meet with God. He would come. He would dwell there. They would go where God would lead, and God was blessed because of it as they would work to, for him, and he would keep his promise to dwell with them. See, when we worship, when we walk, when we work, when we rest in the Lord, He draws near to us. When we are about the Great Commission, when we are about His purposes, He is with us, and we cannot forget this redemption. See, this, this, this is our enduring motivation to work for the Lord. It's that all of it is worship. Our witness is worship. Our walking with Him is worship. Our work for Him is worship. Our rest in Him is worship. See, the blessing of obedience is God's presence. This is why we do what we do, that He would be pleased to dwell among us. The blessing or the reward is not recognition. See, we, we don't work for the Lord, you know, just because we're seeking out high fives and pats on the backs or for that people would notice me like, wow, he's really spiritual. He's really committed. For if that is what is motivating us, we will always be disappointed. 
we'll always be disappointed. It doesn't mean we can't encourage one another. We actually should. We should be honoring one another, especially for their service to the Lord. The thing is, is we can't be after it. We can't be looking for it. We can't be seeking it. That cannot be the enduring motivation for why we serve the Lord. The reward is not recognition, nor is it promotion. See, we don't serve the Lord if we're just looking for more power, more prestige, more, you know, to be in the room where it happens. For that belongs to the Lord, all power, all prestige. It doesn't mean we don't have ambition. It doesn't mean that we don't seek more spiritual responsibility as we disciple uh, one another and as we want to lead for the glory of God. But we can't be seeking it for the sake of the power and prestige and the promotion that comes. And we must remember this church when these attitudes, these sinful attitudes creep into our soul. They're subtle, they're subtle, but they are so dangerous. They're dangerous and they keep us actually away from the presence of the Lord. They keep us from uh, attaining the very thing that we want. For subtly here, look at verse 35. See, it's just kind of said here, but it's, but it's really quite tragic. But God would be merciful here. But verse 35, Moses was not able to enter. He kept at a distance. They, they could not come. Now, they had assembled all this stuff, and now God was dwelling among them. But here's the thing, church. Leviticus hadn't happened yet. Their sin still kept them apart. God would still have to come and lay out the sacrificial system. Their sin wouldn't have to be atoned for. They, they could not get any closer than this. God was here, but they could not enter until their sin was atoned for. And so look, this, this is what's glorious. I'm going to give you a sneak peek into the next few books because I know how much everybody loves Leviticus, right? No, I know Leviticus is so hard, but let me just give you kind of an overarching picture of what is to come. Because even though Exodus is ending, it is really from here. And so I just showed you here. Open your Bibles. I want you to follow along with some. Moses, he's not able to enter the tent. Look over. It's probably on your next page. Leviticus 1.1. The Lord called Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting saying, speak to the people of Israel and say to them, whenever you bring an offering to the Lord, you shall bring your offering of livestock from the herd or from the flock. Now, I'm not getting into the offering stuff here, but I want you to see what is happening in one one. The Lord called to Moses and spoke to him where? From the tent. God is in the tent. Moses is outside the tent, still unable to enter. And all of Leviticus is about laying out the, the laws and the purity laws and the priestly rituals, all leading to the, the day of atonement in Leviticus 16 and 17, where their sins would be atoned for. And when that would happen, then the high priest could draw near to God. Moses can't. He's still kept out from the tent. And so Leviticus is given. All these things are given. And now flip over to Numbers 1.1. Go over there. Just flip. Numbers is the next book. Be cool. It's fine. Come over. Numbers 1 1. Are you there? Okay, look at look at it. Numbers 1 1. The Lord spoke to Moses in the wilderness of Sinai. Okay, they're still there. They haven't left. In the tent of meeting on the first day of the second month in the second year after they had come out of the land of Egypt, saying, Now where is Moses? covenant, the laws, the, all of it is working. 
They're doing it. They're, they're able to draw near to God. And so now in numbers, they can come. And now as we read their numbers, man, they jack it all up. They, they, they sin again. They grumble like a, like a bunch of children over and over and then God in Deuteronomy, God will lay out the law for them as they're entering the promise and they're saying, hey, if you want to be blessed by me, hey, if you want to, then you must obey my law as you enter into the fulfillment here of this blessing into the promised land. That's what Deuteronomy is about. But see, church, get this, get this back to Exodus. Gave you a little sneak peek here. But what is it for? The work for the Lord is about worship. And our worship and our work is ongoing because sin remains. Because our sin remains, and so we have to keep coming to Christ. We have to keep coming to Him, confessing our sin, working for the Lord, not to work uh, uh, to earn God's favor. That's not what it's about. But we continue plodding on in joyful obedience in the Lord. Why? Because God deserves more and more glory. So we work for Him. So we worship Him with all of our heart, pleased to be used by the Master for His eternal purposes. See, church, when the game of life is over, we, we, we want to know that we've given it all for Christ, don't we? We don't know. Or some of you think, well, I might be closer to that. I've got a long time to live. We don't know that. When our life is over, we want to know we've given it all for, to Christ and have held nothing back. We've left it all on the court, so to speak. No regrets, no guilt, only grace, only glory, doing all for the work of the Lord and his glory. That's what we want, don't we? We want this as God sets us free. We want our life to count for him. And so from the day we began Exodus, even to now, my prayer for you and for each of us as we've journeyed through this has been from Colossians 1, which echoes uh, yet again of Exodus I'll close with this. And so from the day we heard, we've not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power, according to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father, who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints and light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Pray with me.